Uh, well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Galeesh, for that introduction. It's great to be back in Grand Rapids. The last time I was here, there was a blizzard, so uh, it's nice to actually see the town. Uh, it's a very lovely town. And uh, In fact, I have to tell you, I was telling Galeesh last night, I, since I was last here, I've done some work with uh, Bill Seidman. Uh, and uh, so in the process of that work, uh, I've gotten to know a lot more, not only about him and, and certainly his career with President Ford, uh, but a lot more about this university and uh, a lot more about this town. And uh, to hear Bill Seidman talk is, is to hear uh, someone who has a real love affair with Grand Rapids. And now, this being my second time back, uh, I think I can see why. So uh, thanks for having me back. I want to thank uh, the entire staff, particularly uh, Gleaves uh, and Mandy and, and also Heather and Brian for uh, for setting this up and uh, inviting me and, and for taking such good care of me. I, I think I am the only non-academic uh, speaking, so I, I hope I don't embarrass myself today. Um, I, I do come from uh, sort of a different place. I come from politics, although I'm pretty much retired from it now and, and trying to write books. Um, I, I will tell you a funny story about two of the people I worked for in, in 06 uh, when I was working for Schwarzenegger. Uh, the president came out and did an event, and uh, he began his speech by saying that uh, he and the governor of California had three things in common. They both had great jobs, they both had great wives, and they both have huge biceps. Um, <laughs> Schwarzenegger thought that was very funny, by the way. <laughs> so uh, I, I do sort of approach this from a, a little bit of a different angle. When we talk about legacy and when we talk about legacy uh, or lessons, uh, I think in terms of history. Uh, I think in terms of, of how history will regard the last several years, how history will regard this president. Uh, I certainly am very aware of uh, uh, many of the complaints that are made uh, and many of the shortcomings that people have, uh, have seen in this administration, and I, I, I certainly understand that and, and uh, have no intention of, of, of trying to argue with that. What I want to do rather is talk about how the process of history will likely play out in the next several years, because I don't believe the last word uh, has even been has been written. In fact, I'm not sure even the first word has been written on what's what's just transpired in the last few years. We are just beginning the process of debating and discussing and deliberating uh, over this president and over these times. Uh, you know, there's a funny story about Churchill being asked how history would regard him, and he said it'll regard me very well because I tend to write it. Um, <laughs> Well, Bush is no exception. I mean, he's announced plans. He's going to write a book as well. It's interesting, though. I think this is somewhat revealing. Uh, he's not going to do a memoir, as, as I understand it, from what I've read in the press. He is doing a book on tough decisions. Uh, and I think that's revealing uh, in a number of ways because I think it, it's, it's reflective of the world that he found himself in. Uh, and and as, as you may notice on your program, I mean, the title that I gave this, this talk today is, is A Hard Presidency. Uh, the challenging times and ch tough choices of President Bush. You know, Emerson said that there's no there's no history, there's biography, uh, and and I think there's been maybe a little too much focus on biography because biography happens within the context of history. Uh, so to look at Bush and to look at his legacy, you have to look at what was going on uh, and what the choices were that were available to him. And I think the argument that you're going to see the president make, and this is just sort of my hypothesis, but I think this is where uh, you're going to see him headed. Uh, is that these were very, very difficult times. These were very difficult challenges, and there were simply no easy roads for him to go down. Uh, and so what I want to do today is very briefly, and then we'll take some questions, I want to talk about three things. First, 
uh, I want to talk about what Bush's legacy looks like today and how it's already changing. And I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's, 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 it, we're in the very early stages of, of, uh, of the writing of the history of this, and it's, there's already been some interesting developments that I want to talk about. Um, secondly, uh, and this goes to what Gleaves was talking about earlier with, with you know, some of my experience in the White House, um, what was it that Bush was trying to do, and, and why was he trying to do it? I mean, we, we tend to focus on, um, you know, what happened and when it happened, and, and perhaps it will provide a little more perspective to see kind of why he was doing what he was doing and, and, and how. And then finally, um, as I mentioned earlier, how is it that Bush will likely try to argue his case before the bar of history? Um, and I, what I want to try to do today is rather than use the zoom lens uh, that we often use in, in evaluating presidents by zeroing in on a couple of facts or a couple of episodes, I want to use a wide lens and take a look at um, at the entire uh, uh, landscape uh, of the last eight years. Uh, so let's start with sort of where he is now uh, in terms of history and, and, and some of the movement that we already we already are seeing. First of all, he is in very good company, uh, as, as, as was talked about earlier uh, by Professor Burke, whose, whose work I've, I've admired for years on Eisenhower and, and informed my own work. Um, it, it is very common for a president to leave office uh, more unpopular than when he came in. And uh, Professor Burke mentioned Eisenhower, a guy that, that I wrote a book about. It's interesting, when Eisenhower left office, uh, I'm a big Russell Kirk fan and, and uh, um, have enjoyed uh, particularly his Burke book and his Elliott book. Uh, but Russell Kirk had a famous joke uh, as Eisenhower was leaving office, uh, responding to critics on the right of Eisenhower who uh, said that uh, you know, he was a little too cozy uh, in, in the Cold War with the Soviets. And Russell Kirk famously said, Mike's not a communist, he's just a golfer. Um, well, you know, with friends like these, I didn't need enemies, and uh, and, and and his his historical records suffered for many years. Um, but as Professor Burke correctly noted, it was Fred Greenstein who discovered the hidden hand, and who found, as Gary Wills uh, later said, a, a a a political genius was Gary Wills' formula. I mean, this is a guy behind the scenes. Uh, working very skillfully on very difficult problems, and it turns out he was a much better president and a much more active president uh, than anybody realized at the time. Indeed, my own work on civil rights shows that even on that issue, uh, he deserves much more credit uh, than he's gotten, and, and I, I think hopefully he's, he's starting to get some of that credit. So even on a president like Eisenhower, um, you see cycles of history, you see revision, you see people discover new evidence and have new perspectives and new insights. Um, it, it'll be a while before we get to that point, but there is going to be a significant amount of, of Bush scholarship and Bush revision, and, uh, and I think it will, it will progress from where it is now. Now, where is it now? Well, uh, the, the pundits and experts tell us that uh, he governed as a partisan, presided over a deteriorating economy, uh, and stumbled in the war on terror. Ironically, uh, these conclusions suffer from the same flaws that the critics say they see in Bush. They're too lazy, they're too simple, and they're too lacking in nuance. Uh, to be sure, the Bush record, like all records, will be mixed, but the portrait that will eventually emerge will be comprised of many, many colors, uh, not just the varying shades of black that often fill the canvas today. Uh, and so, as I said, the revision process has already begun. Not long ago, there was a History News Network poll uh, that found 61% of historians ranked Bush uh, as the worst president in history. Apparently, they have not studied James Buchanan. Um, <laughs> But, but, but here's what's interesting. Even since then, and that was about a year ago, uh, there have been a couple of important pieces written in, in, in very important journals. Uh, one came in National Journal. It was written by Jonathan Rausch. 
He argued that Bush, in fact, is going to end up doing much better than this uh, and will probably belong in the middling ranks of presidents. And then more recently, Fareed Zakaria uh, of Newsweek magazine and also CNN um, argued in a Newsweek piece entitled What Bush Got Right uh, that much of the criticism leveled at the president's policy is directed at his earlier policies. And this, these were his words, quote, the policy the administration is currently pursuing is less vulnerable to easy attacks. So thus, in basically a one-year span, you see Bush already beginning uh, to encourage some discussion, to, to encourage some debate, and frankly, to, uh, to receive a little bit of credit uh, from people who are, are not inclined to support him. Fareed Zakaria was, was an open opponent of the president and, and endorsed Senator Obama. So uh, there is a little bit of a shift uh, that you're already beginning to see. I think the key to this, and I think you're going to continue to see kind of a reevaluation and the key is that so much of the focus now is on the content of Bush's decisions, and I think probably too little has been on the context of his decisions. Uh, and again, to go back to Churchill, you know, he famously joked, democracy was the worst form of, form of government except for every other one tried in the world. Um, there's something of a similar dynamic at work here in the sense that George W. Bush, after 9-11, found himself uh, facing unparalleled challenges in a whole new world that no one had ever imagined before. Uh, and because of that, there were simply no easy choices. There were no obvious solutions. There were no clear-cut paths. He had to make his own way. Uh, and so, and that's, that's essentially what he tried to do. Uh, obviously, there were setbacks along the way. Obviously, there were some successes. Historians will debate that. But the, as they do debate that in the future, they will take into account the fact that these were extraordinary times and extraordinary challenges that he faced. None of this happened in a vacuum. Uh, this was not the 1990s where you had, uh, you know, a relatively peaceful world and a roaring economy, and, and you know we could consume ourselves with, with you know, things like impeachment. Uh, I mean, these were very serious challenges that, that confronted us uh, in a way that, that no challenge really had before. So that leads to our second topic. Uh, not only what was Bush doing, but, but why was he doing it and, and, and what was he trying to do? I think it's important to mention, and, and this was discussed earlier, uh, sort of the backdrop of Bush coming into office after the Florida recount, after the Clinton years, um, after a, a, a very close election. Uh, he had some real challenges even before 9-11, and, and I'd like to refer to the work of, of Forrest McDonald, who argues that the Founding Fathers, drawing on the British example, uh, essentially created two descriptions for the president, two job descriptions for the president, head of state and a chief political leader. Now, in England, these jobs are done by different people. Uh, the prime minister does the politics, uh, and the, the queen does uh, the head of state. But here in America, you do both, which is a very tough job description under any circumstance. Uh, and it was particularly difficult for Bush coming in after Florida and after a close election. Um, and so... I think it's important to kind of look back and, and remember some of those early days because they, they've been largely forgotten in our discussion of the Bush presidency. Uh, I mean, this is a man who came in really working hard at the head of state role, really trying to bind uh, the, the country together, trying to heal some wounds. Uh, I went back and, and pulled up some media coverage from those early days. Uh, this is what Richard Cohen wrote in the Washington Post in the spring of 2001, describing how Bush was meeting with Democrats at the White House and and, and how he was operating in the early days. Quote, he wades into groups of Democrats, patting them on the back, bestowing nicknames, nicknames on them, and proving, as I'd always feared, that he is impossible to dislike. I hate people I can't hate. <laughs> now, I should add, a more recent glance at a more recent Cohen column shows that he no longer has that problem. But, um, 
But this was Bush of the early days. I mean, this was Bush meeting with Ted Kennedy at, 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 in the Oval Office about education and working on no, no Child Left Behind. And a lot of that has been forgotten. Um, what happened? Well, obviously 9-11 happened. And 9-11 changed everything again, as was discussed this morning, uh, the domestic policy, uh, where I think Bush really wanted to lead and, and had really campaigned on in 2000. Uh, took a back seat, and he essentially becomes a, uh, a wartime president. And really, almost from the beginning, you see the seeds of, uh, of the discontent from the very beginning. I mean, war is a very difficult thing, uh, and, and, and you can see almost from the beginning that he is headed towards some very difficult times, uh, not only politically, but with the country as a whole. I mean, remember, uh, in those early days, some of the criticisms uh, that were leveled at him. You know, he, he read a book to school children. He didn't rush back to the White House, and you know, he wasn't brave like Rudy. He wasn't on the site. I mean, there was a lot of real nitpicking of him right from the very start. And so, I think it's important to remember that, that from the very beginning, I think he knew uh, that this was not going to be easy. There were going to be opponents. Uh, war is an inherently uh, divisive process, and he would have to fight very difficult, very important battles. And 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 so, you see. Uh, after 9-11, sort of the soft tone of the first eight or nine months, giving way to hard choices and tough realities. Um, so what was the president trying to do? Again, to go back to, to history and the legacy. Well, he, he, he would tell you that he, he busied himself fighting important legislative battles, getting insurance for the airline industry, and creating a new counter-terrorism uh, counter uh, infrastructure, as, as Brian discussed. Uh, and, and, and even while he was fighting the war, trying to create a... Uh, something of, an, of a, a tone of tolerance. Remember, during the Afghan campaign, uh, he took time to visit a mosque, and uh, in addition to that, created Freedom Corps uh, explicitly for the purpose of, of enlisting people in, in volunteerism and in community service. Um, it's interesting also, fast forward about a year later, you recall he fought Congress over having a, a cabinet-level Department for Homeland Security. He wanted it based uh, in the White House. Uh, and it's interesting that for the most part, I mean, he basically ceded on that issue, uh, and a cabinet-level agency was created. Um, so, I, I, it's again, I, it's hard to look back at that and see this partisan caricature that has been created in later years, uh, when in fact he was, you know, sort of taking the other guy's ideas uh, on, on on many occasions. Uh, so, but but nevertheless, he still is in very uh, uncharted waters, uh, very difficult times, very new challenges. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and appear to be doing pretty well with, with the American people. And, and we've talked about this before at this conference in 2002. Uh, Republicans, uh, for the first time since 1934, uh, win seats in Congress. They take back the Senate. They increase their margin in the House. And uh, I think it's safe to say if, you know, if the war on terror had ended uh, sometime in 2003, uh, when his numbers were very, very high and had been for, for a while, uh, he likely would have remained a very popular president. Uh, but, but the president believed in times of crisis, uh, like Lincoln and like Roosevelt, uh, that he had the prerogative to lead boldly, that he needed to lead boldly, and frankly, that he, he was now living in a very different world. Uh, this is his quote to, uh, to CBS News a couple of years ago. He said, quote, September 11th affected my thinking. It basically changed my attitude about the world, and I resolved around that time that I would do everything to protect the American people. So here is the paradigm shift that happens uh, at least in the president's mind. He decided, uh, as he said often, uh, that he could no longer be on defense, uh, that he could no longer wait uh, for another attack, uh, that essentially we've seen what crazy people can do with planes, 
Uh, imagine what crazy people could do with, with something much more deadly. Uh, and so he decides that uh, Iraq is an issue that has to be confronted. Uh, and you'll recall in the 1990s, uh, Congress passed legislation uh, calling for regime change in, in Iraq. Bill Clinton signed it into law. Uh, and so this was not uh, necessarily a new policy in the sense that, that it was a bipartisan support that this guy needed to go, but it was new in the sense that the president wanted to do something about it uh, and, and was willing to, uh, to go to the country and, and, and try to make the case um, to do it. Um, now, it's also worth re remembering that, that he was widely supported at the time. Um, uh, as, in, in terms of the intelligence reports that he was reading uh, concerning weapons of mass destruction, uh, he decided that Saddam um, certainly was trying to get these weapons and, and may well have them. Uh, most members of Congress voted the same way. Uh, most Americans in, in, in a Pew poll that came out agreed. Um, even the UN said that, uh, that Saddam uh, had these weapons. So. It's, it's again, some of this is sort of lost in history that uh, there, was a, there were a lot of people um, who were very comfortable, um, perhaps maybe not with, with the details of the plan, with the, but, but with the direction that the conversation on Iraq was going. Uh, perhaps no better source is, is Joe Biden, who said in 2002, Saddam Hussein's a long-term threat and a short-term threat to our national security. We have no choice, Joe Biden said, but to eliminate the threat. Uh, and Biden was then subsequently joined by more than half the Senate Democrats uh, in voting for the Iraq resolution. Um, and so, and, and I, the Pew poll I mentioned, I mean, 62% of the American people supported military intervention at that point. Now, um, I think in the president's mind, what he would say is um, so many other options had been tried. Sanctions had been tried, diplomacy had been tried, inspections had been tried, they'd gone to the UN, there'd been 16 resolutions. Uh, nothing had worked, and the only thing that would work was uh, some sort of a military intervention. Otherwise, he could simply hope that Saddam didn't have this, and he didn't think after 9-11 um, that hope was much of a policy. Now, here's where I think the president's rhetoric uh, could have been better. I think that it, that it probably hurt him in the long run. I think that he, he would have been better off to have talked early on about the cost, uh, about the fact that uh, this was a bad option, but in his mind it was the only option. Uh, I think that if he had had, I mean, think of Churchill at the end of the North African campaign. Uh, you know, this is not uh, this is not the end. Uh, this is not the beginning of the end. This is the end of the beginning. Okay, preparing the British people for many, many more tough fights down the road. Churchill was a master at lowering people's expectations, uh, and I think Bush could have done more of that, and, and it would have served him well in the long run to simply say to people, uh, as Senator McCain did, frankly, uh, from the beginning, uh, that this was a very difficult choice. It's a very painful choice, but we think it's the only choice we have at this time, given the change in, changing nature of the world that we find ourselves in. Um, the political scientist Richard Neustadt has said that, that weakness is a key to studying presidential power, ironically. Uh, these are his words, weakness in the sense of a great gap between what is expected and assured capacity to carry through. Uh, I think Bush's efforts in Iraq sort of prove this. Um, the declining fortunes in his own political numbers and his polling numbers in some ways can be traced, I think, to heightened expectations about what could be done in Iraq. And when the fighting continued week after week, month after month, year after year, you see the president's numbers begin to come down uh, and, and, and stay down. Um, but, uh, as has been noted at this conference, as the campaign in Iraq wore on, uh, the president made changes, uh, significant changes. Uh, replacing Rumsfeld with Gates made a statement Replacing Casey with Petraeus made a difference. Uh, and all you need to do is read Bob Woodward's most recent book to see a president 
uh, find the leader he wants in David Petraeus and work with him uh, very assiduously, in, in, in my estimation, having read some of the book, uh, in, in overcoming uh, even the military's uh, own objections uh, to what Petraeus was doing. Uh, now, you could argue that this was too little too late. Why, didn't he, why did he do this in 2007? He should have done it in 2003. I think that's a legitimate argument that historians will have. Uh, but part of that argument will be an acknowledgement that the Bush policy today, as Fareed Zakaria said, uh, is very different than it was in 2003. Uh, even on things like Iran and North Korea, I mean, you're beginning to see diplomatic contact, uh, and there was even a, a denuclearization agreement with North Korea. Uh, and to quote Zakaria again, this is why he believes, quote, the next president should follow rather than reverse many of the Bush foreign policies. In other words, where Bush is today uh, is actually in many ways in a good place. Uh, and even a, an Obama administration um, might be able to build on, on, on some of that. So uh, in addition to that, of course, uh, the president was fighting a war at home. Uh, obviously, uh, the terror strategy or part of it was to disrupt the economy. Um, and, uh, and, and the president was, was busy fighting that, as, as was talked earlier in this conference, with, with tax cuts. Um, and um, supporting the airline industry and, and, and a number of issues designed to help the economy out. Um, it's interesting in this most recent financial crisis, um, and I think, again, this is somewhat revealing um, of, of, of kind of how Bush doesn't, he, he has pretty bad luck on this. Um, you know, Bush sort of you know, convenes this meeting and is trying to take the bull by the horns and come up with a, a rescue package. <coughs> and it's interesting. I mean, you can argue, and historians will debate whether or not the package worked, whether or not it was the right answer to the, to the you know, whether it was the right prescription to uh, uh, to the, the illness of the economy. What I think is revealing is who Bush was taking on. He was taking on his own party, uh, and and to me, part of the real story of the Bush presidency in the second term, when his numbers become dreadfully low and stay low. Remember, John McCain got 45, 46 percent of the vote in a horrible climate for a Republican to run against a really outstanding Democratic opponent, outspent, outcovered in the media, terrible Republican issues, still gets 45 or 46% of the country. What does that tell us? That tells us that's the actual base. That's where Bush should have been his whole second term. Instead, he was at 30 or 25. Why? Because he lost part of his base. And so we, you know, we tend to focus so much on Iraq and people are unhappy on Iraq. That's true. The other side was unhappy with him on Iraq. But his home party was unhappy with him, but not over Iraq. Uh, it was on many of the issues that I just discussed, on, on, on financial services, and particularly uh, on immigration. I mean, where Bush really took on his own party and, uh, and paid a real price in terms of part of his own base peeling off and stopping to support him. So, again, hardly the caricature of this partisan bomb thrower uh, that he was trying to lead and trying to bring his party along uh, on an issue that he thought needed to be dealt with. Now, what will Bush argue before the bar of history uh, as, as the debate over his legacy uh, rages? I, I think part of what we'll, you'll see made from, uh, from the Bush administration will be, and, 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 and people who worked in the Bush administration, I think what they'll argue is that you could disagree on some of the answers they came up with, but they were asking the right questions. These were difficult questions, they were important questions, um, and, and, and they were focused on the right things. I mean, questions about Iraq. I mean, you know, this had been the policy of the, of the American government, a bipartisan policy for 10 years. Um, and, and Saddam had, had violated 16 UN resolutions. So you know, why wasn't there something more that could be done? 
You can disagree with what happened, uh, but but the issue itself he, he was he, he was raising was a good one and an important one for the country. Also on domestic issues, as I mentioned, I mean asking questions of his own party about immigration, asking questions of his own of his own party of, of voters of faith about why you don't take your faith overseas to places like Africa. Remember, Bob Geldof said in terms of African aid, this is the most progressive president since John Kennedy, and and that again that's not an issue that won him a lot of support with his own base. So I think he was asking a lot of important questions. We can debate about the answers. We can debate about the execution of those things. But I think, again, this is going to make for a very lively uh, historical uh, debate and discussion because I think these were, were important questions uh, that, he was, that he was trying to answer and trying to go against. So I guess I would close by simply saying this is just the beginning. I have no idea how this is going to play out in history. Uh, I do think it's a little more complicated than we think it is today. Uh, it, it's not as simple as uh, you know a, a bad economy and a bad war and he was a bad president. It was a hard presidency. There were very difficult challenges. There were no easy solutions. And he was trying to find his way as best he could. And, and perhaps you know one day uh, you know, he, he can quote his friend Tony Blair who said this when he, when he left 10 Downing Street. He said, hand on heart, I did what I thought was right. I may have been wrong. That's your call. But believe one thing of nothing else. I always did what I thought was right for our country. I think that's the argument Bush is going to try to make in history, before the bar of history. Uh, and the jury is out uh, as to what the verdict will be. So I'll leave it with that, and I'll be happy to take your questions. Yes, sir. Did you see the movie about the I have not. I have read some press accounts uh, of, of and, and I again I should say I mean I was a pretty small cog in the wheel um, so I you know I was not around him a whole lot uh, but but I have read some press accounts of um, people who were who have said that it was pretty absurd the movie so I don't know. Yes, ma'am. As the mother of a 21-year-old Marine for the past year, who's looking at deployment sometime next year, I sincerely fear the approach of the media, how much they disclose, and how much our political leaders tip the hand of what is going on in our war. I love the fact that Bob Woodruff had the courage and the support of his family to write a book. Taking the time to share with the rest of the world what happens with a traumatic brain injury? How many of us could survive a relationship of a broken body? How many children are dealing with that in this room of our relationships? On the north end of Grand Rapids, we have one of the largest nursing homes in the country. We as a country made a promise 
that we would care for our veterans. And I wonder how many people here will put their money where their mouth is on that promise. I have the honor of being the sister of a career man from the Vietnam era. His only missing part that he indicated was a fingertip when he was 16 years old from a power takeoff in a farm accident. He had two tours of duty in Vietnam for heavy equipment. Somebody was shining on him because he would drive a bulldozer. Mom, I totaled it twice. They were able to fix it a third time. Um, how lucky can one be? Um, when it was time to vote, my husband, the five-year veteran of that era, said, the Republicans tend to take better care of the military folks than the Democrats had a history of doing that. And I waited a long time to really decide who to vote for. And when I learned that I was wrong, it was okay. Because when I saw the college students outside of the White House, I knew that it's okay that I don't always get my own way. Um, I trust that President-elect Obama will surround himself with the right folks. Um, so if everybody here would kind of nudge him in that direction to choose the right advisors, um, Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I should just say I was, uh, I'm was i a Navy reservist myself, and I was at uh, Brook Army Medical Center about a week ago in San Antonio, um, which is where virtually all of the, the, the burn victims from Iraq come. And uh, it's uh, beyond inspiring to be around those folks because without fail, uh, they don't see themselves as victims. Uh, they're proud of what they did, and uh, they're eager to go back. And uh, it's pretty it's pretty remarkable to be around them. So I, I thank you for your your is it your son is a marine? He is. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Who else? Way in the back. Um, you talked about Bush's choices, but it seems to me that he just follows the interests of the the business class and point um, case immigration. You know, immigration. Uh, is something that business wants because they want cheap labor. Well, it's interesting if you look at um, how he's how he's packaged it. Um, it it's always been packaged in terms of the, there are people in the shadows who are here, um, whether you want them to be here or not. Um, and I, so his argument is is in fact. Um, um, a, a very humanizing argument uh, that, that he's used publicly. Now, does business support uh, cheap labor? Certainly, but but the fact is, I mean, the Republican Party has never had a Republican president that has publicly been um, 
I almost want to say as pro-immigrant as this president. So I, I, I don't I, I don't see any evidence that this was um, you know a, a political calculation. If, if there's one thing we have learned about this guy, love him or hate him, uh, I mean he. he is determined to do what he thinks is right. I mean, if he was a political guy, uh, he would have pulled out of Iraq four years ago uh, when it first became unpopular. So I, I don't, I'm not able to, to see into his mind and, and, and see what his motivations are other than what he says. And, and, and the way he says it is that he, he does it in a very humanizing way, that these are people too. Uh, they're here. And, uh, and we need to find out a way to, to, to come up with a legal process for him. Yes, sir? I want you to compare what you've done with Eisenhower with the George W. Bush spouse. Eisenhower thought it was a mistake for Truman to go into Korea unilaterally on his own and here at President Power. Not coming right. to Congress for uh, support. Right. Uh, Eisenhower thought that was a mistake and thought the country was safer on national security two branches were the right message to enemies, the right message to allies. As you know, uh, Bush started off uh, working with Congress with a number of statutes, and then that seemed to disappear. Uh, do you think Bush would have been, did he have a, was there a capacity to work jointly with Congress well, out of the question, or could he have done more than he did? I mean, again, this is a question that historians will have to answer. I think what he would tell you is, is that he did just that. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the Joe Biden quote comes from the congressional authorization debate uh, on, on, on the Iraq resolution. Um, so I mean, they, I mean, and he would say that he, he did go to Congress and got you know necessary framework for it. Um, I, you know, could he have done more? Sure. I mean, I think <clears throat> that's an issue that people will debate and, and discuss. And, and in terms of Eisenhower, I mean, I I do think I mean Eisenhower to me in my research um, was certainly much more from the realism school than he was the idealism school. Uh, I think Bush very much wants to create. Democracies all over the world. He sees America as sort of a shining city on a hill, and um, and, and thinks that a democracy in the Middle East, um, you know, could, could could lead to good things down the road. Um, I, I think you know a, a a more conservative view of that, and and we don't often think of Eisenhower as a conservative. I actually do, in many ways, a small c conservative uh, would think that there are limits to that um, in, in terms of of uh, you know bringing, as as Professor Fierce said last night, bringing. Uh, freedom to, to, to different parts of the world. So um, it's hard to compare the presidents because they're you know different times, different eras, different challenges. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think um, you know it's it's a question open to be discussed for many many years to come. I'm, no question about it. Gleaves. Is at the Holmstein Center Leadership School, we are constantly in search of case studies that we can show to students that uh, show the strengths and weaknesses of leaders. What, in your mind, Casey, is the best example of President Bush making a great decision uh, as a leader that we could hold up to students? Well, I think, uh, you know, we discussed this earlier today. I mean, I think his, his reaction on 9-11 uh, was a water shift in American policy. Um, we certainly had been attacked before. Uh, we had even been attacked at the World Trade Center before. Uh, we had had military vessels, Navy vessels that had been attacked, uh, embassies that had been attacked. Uh, and yet, in each of these cases, we decided that this was sort of a crime for you know the FBI to investigate or police officials to handle. Uh, so I think the shift from this is a crime to this is a war was a, a very profound shift. 
And then, of course, the second one is you know no longer drawing a distinction between terrorists and the countries that house them. Uh, you know, these were two pretty pretty important shifts in policy that you know I think most people would basically agree with those two things. I think even now, now again, you can argue with the execution, and people will debate you know how those were carried out. But I think the the formulation of those two policies. Uh, I, I don't think after 9/11 most people would would disagree with. So I, I think, in that sense, you know, those were two two pretty important pretty important decisions. In the back. Speech writer, do you view uh, your aforementioned uh, communication Bush's communication difficulties as something that's policy or personal? Well, I mean, obviously every president has strengths and weaknesses. Um, and you know he he certainly is not Reagan, um, but but who is? And and you know typically, um, you know it's interesting. We, Professor Fears and I were talking about this earlier. I mean, there have been great speeches he's given. Um, you know the speech of the National Cathedral was a great speech. Um, the two inaugurals were very you know well received at the time. Uh, his his speech to Congress after 9/11 was uh, was very well received. His speech with the bullhorn at Ground Zero. Uh, was a great moment, impromptu though it was. Uh, so, I mean, I think there are moments where, you know, sort of the, the man and the moment match, and that helps give meaning to the to the speech, and that's always a good thing. You're not just talking; you're actually talking about something important and meaningful in the lives of everybody. So, he was capable of doing it. I do think um, that there could have probably been done more done along the way, as far as uh, you know. Talking about the war, explaining it, as I mentioned earlier, uh, talking about the cost involved, talking about the effort and the time. I mean, I, I've always thought Senator McCain had a much better handle on that from the very beginning. Um, that you know, this is a very uh, painful enterprise, and we need to tell people it's a painful enterprise. Um, and, I, and I think you know, the president would probably say he did some of that, but I, I don't think you can ever do that enough um, to communicate with people that, that this is going to be long and costly. But ultimately, I believe, based on the changing world we're in, it's the best option. There, there are simply no easy roads here. There are no easy choices, and this is the one that, that, that we're going down, and, and, and you know we're going to try to see it through. I think, you know, that would have that would have really helped him if he would have said something like that. Um, so, you know, it's it's again, that's another great area where you know historians will uh, will research and, and write about that. I'm sure. To what extent did the media? Make and unmake George Bush. Well, I mean, the the, the media is is a, a huge factor uh, with this president and uh, with with any president, I suppose. Um, you know, I, it's 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 sort of like I don't know if y'all saw when uh, I guess it was Slate.com came out and they had all their staff mention who they voted for. And it was you know, 55 to one Obama. Um, you know, the, the fact is that's that's the world he lives in, and it, it does no good to complain about that kind of thing. That's that's, you know, that's that's where he is, and he has to deal with it. Um, so I think in some ways it puts the onus on him to communicate even more, to communicate even better, um, and to find new ways to communicate. Um, you know, with Reagan it was sort of you know going over their heads and and doing televised addresses from the Oval Office. Um, so you know, I don't know what the, what the solution was. It certainly was a factor. Uh, I think the the coverage got progressively worse as the administration went on, obviously, and as numbers went down. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's it's a real challenge for any president. I mean, it's it's um, 
it's the world we live in, and and the media now is is so much bigger and so much varied, more varied than it's ever been before. I mean, you've got blogs and you've got you know, internet sites and, and and talk radio, and uh, it's just you know it's it's uh, it's a huge factor. It's a huge factor, and I think you know that's probably another topic that'll be discussed. Discussed is the relationship between Bush and the media, and you know how much they they help bring him down. Yes, sir. I wrote none of them. I was, I was I was very far down on the totem pole. I did like Chamber of Commerce speeches. Yes, sir. Yes, the state of the Republican Party is being talked about currently right now. Well, it's a great question, and I, you know, I, I touched on this earlier. I mean, part of the Bush um, experiment from the beginning uh, was to sort of remake the party, and we talked about that in some of our sessions this morning, and, the, and it was all very true. And, and I, you know, saw some of that firsthand. I mean, there, there, you know, say what you will about this administration and, and, and the politics of it, they were very aware uh, from the very beginning of the changing demographics of the country. Very aware of it. And we're constantly trying to craft, particularly domestic policy, that fit the America of the 21st century. Um, whether it was, you know, talking about education, which Republicans don't like to do, uh, expanding the life agenda to issues other than abortion, you know, with the faith-based initiative in Africa, uh, whether it was immigration and Hispanic outreach. I mean, there was a, a, a very... Uh, deliberate effort to try to remake the party uh, to fit the 21st century. You know, David Frum, that was at the White House with me, is is has written a book about this, uh, and he talks about how you know the things Republic the thing that Republicans don't realize today uh, is that Reagan won. <laughs> you know, all of the issues that that, that were Reagan issues, um, they're gone. I mean, tax cuts are pretty low today because of Reagan. Inflation is gone. The Soviet Union is gone. And so, you know, it, it's not enough to go out and say, I'm a Republican, I want to cut your taxes. Most people pay more in payroll taxes than they do income taxes. So you've got to completely reinvent your economic message as well. And Bush got that. I mean, I, my, my impression is he understood that the world was changing and that the party had to change with it. The problem is, as I mentioned, uh, and it's, it's, it's a very uh, undercover story. I mean, no one has really reported a whole lot on this. I mean, he lost his base. If you, want to, if you want to know the story of the second term and the declining numbers, it's not Iraq. He lost his base. He should have been at 46% the whole time. And and when you lose your base, I mean, they don't care about your ideas for changing the party. They're, you know, they're not listening anymore. So I, I think he had some really good ideas on some of that. Um, will anybody pick up that mantle in the future? I don't know. I mean, we'll have to see. I mean, I, you know, a lot of that's going to depend on who, who rises. I mean, you know. Is it Bobby Jindal? Is it someone like that? You know, we'll have to see. But um, I, again, they were asking some of the right questions, and people can debate if they had the right policy solutions. But they, they, they I do think they were asking the right questions. Yes. Well, as the author of one of the chief documents of guiding the Republican Party just a few years ago, you must surely have some ideas for what should be happening uh, in the next uh, four years to draft the next document. <laughs> well, I'm trying to retire from politics. So. <laughs> um, uh, I, look, I, I think, I mean, I do think, again, basically there needs to be an acknowledgement that the country has changed. Um, it, it's changed on the issues, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we need to re, you know, there needs to be a rethinking of economic issues. 
There needs to be uh, an effort to reach out to, to other groups. Hispanics obviously come to mind. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, a lot of the policy model that Bush was, was experimenting with uh, should, should get another look. Uh, maybe not all of it, maybe not most of it, but a lot of it should get a second look because I do think the country has changed. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the party has to change with that. And that's, that's going to be a real challenge for the next four years because uh, you've got a pretty united base on the other side. Um, and so they're, I mean, they're going to have to come up with a, with a model that works for the future. Who else? Yes, ma'am. I'll keep it short. Okay. Um, were you familiar with the book Lies of George W. Bush? I think there's several sure of those books, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure the author, but I'm like, okay, how prejudicial is this thing? Well, the title sort of tells you, I think. <laughs> I, you know, again, this is the thing. I mean, I welcome all of the debate about the Bush record. I think it's healthy. I think we we really don't know how this is going to play out in history. A lot depends on what happens in Iraq going forward. Um, but you know, you can have that debate and that discussion, and, and we can all agree that some things were right and some things were wrong, and we can debate the other things. But I think it's really unhealthy, uh, you know, to say things that you know that he lied about intelligence. It's the same intelligence Joe Biden was looking at when he said we have to do something about Saddam Hussein. Uh, you know, John McCain had the great line that it's a lie to say the president lied. And so, I, you know, I, I hope as as the debate moves from current events into history, um, that you know they, there could be a real exchange on, on ideas and facts, uh, and you know a little less of the, of the you know the propaganda from, from both sides. Thank you. Thank you all. Very much.